save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. We got a news story that we need to really turn the noise down on. You might have heard tell that over in Russia, they're doing a thing called mobilization now. Now, that's kind of an old school term. We don't really use it in America. We'll get into the difference in that in just a minute. But Vladimir Putin is getting desperate, and he's pulled one of the only cars that he has to try to fix the desperate situation he has in his uh, illegal war of aggression in Ukraine. Let's go to CNN. Uh, CNN puts it this way. Russia's partial mobilization, and that's in quotes, for its war in Ukraine is off to a chaotic start amid protests, drafting mistakes, and an exodus of citizens fleeing Russia as the Kremlin tightens rules around evading military orders. Some residents in far, Russia's Far East Shaka Republic were conscripted, quote-unquote, by mistake. Authoritarians keep making mistakes like that. Despite not being eligible for mobilization, such as fathers with underage children, according to a local leader, all who were mobilized by mistake must be returned back. This work has already begun, the Republic's head, Asian Nikolev, said in a Telegram post following a meeting on the presidential decree on partial mobilization. Two senior lawmakers in Russia acknowledged the issue on Sunday, saying the mobilization should be carried out in accordance with the law. That's in quotes country run by Putin in accordance with the law. That's laughable. And laments reports of, quote, erroneous incidents of mobilizing citizens. Uh, pause here. They're recruiting and throwing in buses and beating in the streets and putting the wrong people in the military because they can't get it right. That's what they're talking about here. Quote, such extremes are absolutely unacceptable. And in my opinion, the harsh reaction we are seeing in society is deserved. Valentina Mat Matvelenko the Speaker of Russia's Federation Council said in a post on Telegram in a direct address to the Russia's regional governors, Matt Vaninko said that they were, quote, fully responsible for carrying out the mobilization campaigns in, quote, full and absolute compliance with the announced criteria. Hold that thought, because I'm going to talk about the criteria in just a second. Volishnislav Volodin, the chairman of the state Duma, by the way, if I'm mispronouncing any of these names, I'm sorry. I know Paul Ruski or however it is you say it. I just know that from Hunt for Red October. Uh, Russia's lower house of parliament echoed Matvodinko's calls for due diligence, adding if a mistake is made, it must be corrected. Meanwhile, videos circulating on Russia's social media appear to reveal the tension, sadness and confusion of that draft, which began after a Wednesday announcement it sparked with scenes of families saying emotional goodbyes and other recruits arguing about being called up. One video on Friday appeared to show police and National Guard members engaged in scuffles with a crowd and draft men boarding a bus in the Omsk region of Russia's Siberia. 
Um, there's other videos out there, by the way, of people so flat drunk they can't get them off the ground to get them on the buses. But, hey, hey it's Russia. What are you going to do? Russian President Vladimir Putin on Wednesday significantly raised the stakes of his assault on Ukraine for ordinary Russians with the announcement of an immediate partial mobilization in a bid to reinforce his faltering invasion following UK Ukraine gains. The mobilization would only affect Russians with previous military experience. Listen closely to this part because it's going to come up in the news coverage. You watch. According to Defense Minister Sergei Soju, who said 300,000 reservists would be called up. However, the decree itself gives much broader terms, sowing fears among Russians of a wider draft in the future. Activist groups such as Free Brutinian Foundation said the ethnic minorities in Russia are being disproportionately mobilized. CNN has geolocated videos of these men being mobilized in Russia's Far East regions. The mobilization announcement sparked anti-war demonstrations across the country, which were swiftly cracked down on by police. At least 1,400 protesters were detained, dozens more that we don't know about. It also sparked an exodus from Russia of military-aged men fleeing the country rather than risking being conscripted with videos showing long lines of traffic at land borders and surging airfields and sold-out flights in recent days. More than 8,500 Russians traveling in a neighbor Finland by land, according to Finnish Border Patrol. The figure represented a 62% increase. Nearly 4,200 Russians exited Finland. Uh, the Vladimira crossing in southeast Finland was the busiest point of Russians coming into the country. Uh, they cut this one guy down there. He said it was very unpopular. Quote, I didn't expect Putin will do this, Thormston said, pointing to the protests across the country. Quote, when the first shot goes away, the resistance will grow. <laughs> Folks, let's talk about a couple things here real quick. There's the public, cultural, and political side of this, and there's the military side of this mobilization. Let's start with the military side real quick. One of the biggest reasons Russia is losing their illegal war of aggression, where they're trying to wipe Ukraine and the Ukrainian identity off the map for refusing to become Russia. By the way, that's that's Vladimir Putin's stated purpose for this war. He said Ukraine is not a real country with a real culture, and they're really Russians. So, yes, this is an ethnic-type war of conquest, and it's not going well. One of the biggest reasons it's not going well is because Russian logistics suck. I've said it over and over again. Look, I'm a transportation log logistics guy by trade. I've been on Russian aircraft. I've dealt with Russian logistics folks. They don't know what they're doing. The Russian military has never prioritized it. They don't have a professional logistics part to their military scheme the way the U.S. does, which is the greatest logistics organization in all of the world. They've always sucked at it. And now they've lost a massive amount of their logistical people, their trucks, their resources, and other things during the war. So just getting those, if, let's just take that 300,000 number at face value, although when you look at the actual text, it's basically whoever they want to call up, they can call up. Getting those 300,000 just to the war is going to be another disaster because they couldn't do that with their front line, top line, best troops. They're not going to be able to do it with a bunch of ragtag conscripts. The other military side of this is this is not going to turn the tide of battle because these folks are not trained up to be frontline fighters. They're not like the United States military, like the National Guard and the Reserve, where they do training and they have specialties already and they're ready to go. And even though they need some additional training, they at least have a basic core competency. It's not how the Russian military works. These people are going to be little more than cannon fodder. They're going to get thrown into a war that's already ongoing with troops that are already demoralized 
with an emboldened Ukrainian military that is making gains, and it's going to be a bloodbath. They're going to slaughter a whole bunch of these people that have no business being in frontline combat in the name of trying to win. Now, that's the military side of it. Let's talk about the cultural political side of it. There's a mistake going on in the media right now where we're talking about anti-war protests. They are protesting the war, but let's be really clear about something in Russia. There's a lot of the Russian people that support this war or support Vladimir Putin, or at least don't care one way or the other as long as it doesn't bother them, which is just as bad, frankly. They've started protesting the war when it hit them and affected them. Now, I understand there's a brutal crackdown. I understand Putin kills his adversaries regularly. We've talked about it on the program before. But note that they just started protesting when it started to affect them. And we've had a lot of reporting. Don't blow off that ethnic minority piece of this. There was all kinds of reporting when the war start that the initial units that went into Ukraine, they were very careful not to send units of people made up too much from places like Moscow because they wanted to try to be able to hide the casualty figures, which they could do until they started racking up by the tens of thousands. Now it's so bad a disaster they can't hide it. And the fact that he's having to do a mobilization in the first place is letting folks know that the war is going badly. So, yeah, there's anti-war protests, but understand, it's not because they feel badly that they invaded Ukraine illegally and are doing massive war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine. It's because it's starting to affect them personally and they don't want to fight themselves. So keep that in mind. Now, there are good in the Russian people, and we hope they're able to throw off the yoke of their dictator at some point, but that's not now. But this is a destabilizing move. We talked about last week, all the satellites of Russia, the old Soviet satellite states. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of destabilizing going on. There's no version of this where Russia, under Vladimir Putin's dictatorship, comes out stronger. And as he starts to have to mobilize his own people... And his own people start resisting and you have to spend effort on that. And the war isn't going to get better in Ukraine. This is going to make it worse, not better. Vladimir Putin's position is going to further deteriorate. And it's something to keep an eye on. Because if more people revolt, the more bloodshed there's going to be. Because Vladimir Putin isn't going to take any of this lightly. and He's not going to go quietly into the night. There will be more blood. Vladimir Putin's already decided much more Russian blood's going to be spilled to try to cover up for his mistake. God help those folks. And in the meantime, keep an eye on Vladimir Putin himself, because he has no trouble making the blood flow among the Russian civilian population if they don't give him what he wants. More heard tell right after this. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Heard Tell. You may have heard tell 
that there's polling season going around right now. Of course, the midterms, but some folks are also getting ahead of themselves and jumping on 2024. Let's go to the Hill for this particular piece. Uh, President Biden says the headline, just 35 percent of Democrats and Democrat leaning independents want President Biden to run for a second term in 2024, according to a new ABC News Washington poll. The poll produced by Langer Research Associates found that 56% of Democrats want the party to choose a different nominee for president, while 9% said they had no opinion. Biden and his age just stressed that the president intends to run again in 2024, although he's not made a formal announcement. The poll found that 39% of the respondents approve of Biden's job performance compared to 53% who disapprove. The president's approval rating has remained underwater for more than a year, with inflation near a 40-year high. 36% of respondents approved of Biden's handling of the economy, while 57% indicated they disapproved. Despite the deficit on his handling of the economy and general performance, the poll found an increasing proportion of Americans believe Biden has accomplished a great deal in the White House. 40% said he's accomplished a great deal or a good amount as president, rising five points from when the last time they asked it back in the fall. Democrats this summer achieved a string of legislative victories, including things like gun control climate spending, and a semiconductor bill. Four in ten Americans who think highly of Biden's accomplishments remain slightly below the historical averages. Since 1993, the figure has clocked in at about a 43% average. Langer Resource Associates conducted the survey uh, between September 18th and the 21st. It's got a 3.5% margin of error. What does this all mean? Let's clear something up, though. Uh, do you want someone else to run isn't a great poll question. Yes, it makes a headline. Yes, it makes a point. Yes, the president's approval ratings do matter somewhat. The problem is elections do not happen with someone's. Remember one thing we always talk about on this program when it comes to things like the quote-unquote generic ballot. Well, generic Democrat or generic Republican always polls better than an actual Democrat or an actual Republican because they don't exist. You've never gone to a ballot and ever seen generic anything on there. They're nameless, it's faceless, and you get to just say, well, anything's got to be better than this person, right? Well, anything's got to be better than President Biden, right? No, because every time you start filling in a name, those numbers are going to move and they're going to change. Let's remember how Joe Biden became president on his third try, by the way, in the first place. He ran against a field of folks, most of whom were told that they were going to be better than him, that he was written off. By the way, I was one of them. I was wrong about the president. I didn't think he would do well in the primary campaign, and he won. He was right. I was wrong. Good for him. But look at the people that he dispatched quickly. His own vice president didn't even make it into the calendar year before folding her campaign. There were others like Pete Buttigieg that are now in his cabinet. It was a long list of folks who was going to beat him, including Bernie Sanders, who, by the way, who won at least one of the early primaries. You can figure out who won Iowa between him and Pete in your own time because they still debate that. But then voters, not Republican voters, Democratic voters. Ran not walk to the polls in places like South Carolina and others. And within a couple of weeks, Joe Biden had that nomination wrapped up. And then he went on to defeat Donald Trump. The problem with polls like this is, of course, folks are going to say, well, anybody but Biden would be better. But you got to put a name in there. 
And when the Democratic bench starts getting looked at and you start plugging in other people's names, those numbers are going to change a lot. It's not just name recognition and it's not just politics that gets you elected president. You have to have a constituency. And the constituency has to be a coalition of both your base and people outside your own base and people outside your party that will elect you in a national election. That's what Joe Biden had. He was never the most popular candidate. He was never the cool candidate. He was never the candidate that got the most people excited. But he was the non-Donald Trump candidate, which meant a lot. And people voted for him. And he became the president of the United States. And as of right now, no other Democrat looks anywhere near close to putting together the same coalition that Joe Biden did. Now, part of that equation was running against Donald Trump. If he's running against Donald Trump again or not running against Donald Trump the next time, that'll change that as well. But that'll still be a name. You can't just say somebody else. Somebody else will always be very popular. You gotta actually run people for the offices that exist. And Joe Biden is going to run for re-election unless something really, really screwy happens. And frankly, my Democratic friends, the best option you got. So just kind of embrace it, get used to it, and emotionally prepare yourself. Because that's pretty much how this is going to go. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, new face. Love getting new contributors on, but he's from an old group of friends. He's a Young Voices contributor. He's up in Michigan at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, although for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against him because it ain't his fault that Rich Rod went up there. Uh, Corinne Rafai, how are you, my friend? Thank you so much for joining the program. I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm good. Uh, I wish we didn't have to talk about this kind of a topic, but we do because it's the kind of world we live in. You're writing in the Detroit News about it. I want to preface it with this because you've already wrote this piece a, a few days ago. But just in the few days since you wrote it, it's all over the news. Protests, dissidents, crackdowns on protests, how authoritative regimes like China, like Vladimir Putin, like others, are extending their reach into Western nations to try to cut down on dissent. This is something, obviously, you probably started researching this a week or two ago. This is something that's going to accelerate in the coming weeks, I think. Is that how it feels to you, too? For certain, yeah. And like I say in the piece, you know, we're all aware that these regimes crack down on dissent within their own borders. But I really wanted to call attention to kind of this growing phenomenon of what drew the guy I interviewed and I call the export of repression abroad. That's a great term. You should uh, trademark that real quick or maybe get the <laughs> domain name for it because that's exactly what they're doing. We throw around terms like um, colonialism and imperialism, but then when you look at China, well, they're being imperialistic about things, but they're being imperialistic about repression and about controlling speech and narratives and things like this. That's part of what you're getting at here in the bigger picture before we get into the specifics of this piece. In the modern world with modern technology, they have to fight with information. They're trying to sequester free speech. That's nothing new in history. 
but it's very different in the modern age and they're not just content to do it in their own countries. They're going worldwide with it. Absolutely. What's the first thing you hit on when you went to look at this? I want you to tell us the story because I think things like this, we get a little buzzwordy on them sometimes. Of course, the old thing about, you know, a million people is a statistic. One man's a tragedy. You highlight this guy in England and he was protesting and he got snatched up, but it's also indicative of this tactic that's been used Tell us the story of this guy and why you started out with it to bring attention to this issue. For sure. Um, so his name is Drew Pavlou. He is an Australian uh, pro-democracy activist. Uh, he's made headlines for a couple of years now. Famously, he um, was removed from Wimbledon after um, holding up a sign, I believe, that said, where is Peng Shui? that um, famous Chinese tennis player who lodged sexual assault allegations at a top CCP official. So he's been uh, in the public eye for a while now. Um, and I've gotten to know him recently pretty intimately. And um, a few months ago now, or a couple of weeks ago, he was protesting in front of the Chinese embassy in London. And essentially what happened was a fake bomb threat under his name was emailed to the embassy. The embassy called the police. He was arrested. He was in you know, jail for 24 hours, like no access to uh, consular assistance. Um, he was in a whole bunch of legal trouble. The authorities were not you know, believing his story that this was a fake threat. Um, he was essentially trapped in London for almost a month because of court dates. He was told, you know, if he left the country, he may be arrested. Um, and all of this just sparking from him standing outside an embassy with a couple of flags um, ended up with him being arrested for like uh, threatening to commit a terroristic act. And the thing about this is, and as you detailed it, the reason we know this was probably a setup is because the Chinese officials, the CCP and their intelligence and their security apparatus, they've targeted him before. So the fact that he was just standing out there, they knew they knew well and good who this guy was. And they made sure it was a very specific, oh, this is the guy that did that, right? Absolutely. And the exact same thing happened to him again this week in Australia, another fake bomb threat under his name. But now finally, you know, authorities have caught on that this is, you know, a targeted campaign against him. So um, he's not facing really any legal trouble from what I know now. But yeah, it just continues. The thing about this is this is almost like the swatting tactic we've seen in American domestic politics. But on an international level, this has extreme consequences. Like you said, he's an Australian, so he's a Commonwealth guy. He should be able to travel. This could prevent him from traveling. This is very much a way of trying to tap down dissent because the reason they go after a high profile dissenter like him is because if you can get him, then the rest are quiet. We just had on our program talking about Hong Kong with Francis Wei, And then they're like, look, when they took out the top 50 or 60 organizers, all the protests in Hong Kong stopped. This is a pattern. This is something the Chinese Communist Party has down to a science. They know what they're doing, doing this. And the pattern is something we should see to see how it's reaching out worldwide. And you touch on that. Absolutely. Um, like you mentioned with Hong Kong, diaspora communities have been targeted for a really long time now. Uh, Uyghurs, Hong Kongers, uh, Taiwanese people, um, especially on college campuses too, there's you know the CSSA, 
uh, which is the Chinese Student Scholars Association, which, you know, there's a bunch of accusations that the Chinese government uses that organization on campuses to spy on dissent um, from students. So uh, Drew kind of also drew that to my attention as well, that a lot of the diaspora communities in the UK and in Australia have been constant targets by the CCP, even once they've left China's borders. And what does he say when you talk to him? Again, put a personal face on this because we, we understand the geopolitics of it. We understand the human rights issue part of it. Well, most people that are functional adults that aren't wicked understand it. There's some people in the world that don't. When you're talking to him, what comes across? Like, what drives people to keep dissenting like this? Is it the people he knows personally? Is it just the wrongness of it? When you're talking to somebody like that one-on-one, -on -one, not through a news story, not through a written piece, not through propaganda videos and YouTube, both for and against, what is it that comes across? Um, yeah, like you mentioned, he's made a lot of close connections with people from those diaspora communities. And when you talk to them and you hear their stories, it's impossible not to empathize. You know, as a Syrian too, like I'm a part of a diaspora community from an authoritarian country. And when I tell my story to people who are not Syrian, um, I see that kind of empathy in Drew as well, even though he's not Chinese and he's, you know, from Australia, born and raised from what I know. Um, you can just really tell he has a lot of empathy and he's heard a lot of personal stories from, you know, Tibetans and Uyghurs, et cetera. Let me ask you about that because, um, you know, Syria and Assad and Russia and ISIS, that was just a brutal mix of basically all the world's worst actors converging. And the Syrian people ended up paying a heavy, heavy price, a massive price in death in wiped out cities. We'll probably never know the actual death toll. When you're talking to somebody who maybe doesn't follow politics, especially world politics, and doesn't even know something like that even exists, How's it hit you? Do you feel a, do you just not want to talk about it? Do you feel a responsibility as somebody in a diaspora community of, I need to explain to them why this is so important. Talk about that because I've talked to so many people in these kind of communities. We've had them on the show before and they all talk about it. It's like, this isn't really what I want, but I feel a burden about this sort of thing. I feel like I'm representative of it. How do you carry that burden? And do you feel it? Um, I definitely feel like I have an obligation to speak up for people in Syria who never had the chance to, um, especially for my family as well. They've gone through a lot. And, you know, I was privileged enough to be born in the United States. So it's kind of like a survivor's guilt kind of thing. You know, if my parents didn't choose to immigrate here, I probably would have been born in Aleppo and who knows where I would be right now. So it does kind of come out of not only a feeling of obligation, but I want to share my story and the story of other Syrians and what they've gone through because, you know, my ultimate goal is to make sure that what happened in Syria doesn't happen ever again anywhere else. And that's why I have a lot of empathy, you know, for these um, diaspora communities from China and from Taiwan and from Hong Kong, because, you know, their plight is, it's different, but it's similar, this, you know, reverberating effect of authoritarianism, even when you're diaspora, it still affects you every single day. So. Yeah. And what you're saying about survivors guilt is the same thing. A lot of those people have said when we've interviewed them and talked to them or even talked to them offline, just prepping. Obviously Syria was, is a terrible thing. When you see that's kind of the end game of it though, where you just have leveled sit, literally you talk about Aleppo, like just rubble for most of it, unfortunately. 
talk about for somebody who just can't draw the line, no matter how you explain it to them, is like the reason you have to stand up to a bomb threat in London, the reason you have to stand up to Putin in Ukraine before it gets to that shooting war, before you get to tens of thousands of dead, before you get to a level cities, this quieting of dissent is how that starts. You draw that straight line in your advocacy. You've done it on your Twitter account. You do it in this piece. But just explain to people that's why this is so important because that is how, you know, that crushing a dissent is what leads to those level cities every single time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's not always the most attractive and appealing thing to, you know, call out foreign human rights abuse when it's not trendy. You know what I mean? So Ukrainian activists have been talking about Ukraine since the annexation of Crimea, and they've been largely ignored. They've been warning us about Putin for years. Syrian activists, the exact same thing. We've been warning about Russia for years, largely ignored. And until Russia actually mobilizes a full invasion of a European country is when it becomes trendy and sexy to talk about, oh, Russia is so bad. We need to do something about Russia, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, if we had jumped to action like we should have years ago, we wouldn't be at the place where we are today with entire cities in Ukraine and Syria being leveled and thousands, tens of thousands of people being dead. Yeah, unfortunately, you're correct. Uh, Kareem Rafai joining us on Hertel. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We come back. There's more in this piece. He talks about Iran. We're going to talk some more about China. We're going to talk some more about dissidents and Russia. All three of those heavily in the news cycle right now. We're going to work through them with our friend Raheem Jake, Young Voices contributor. Great conversation, deep conversation, but an important one to have. Hertel continues right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Continuing our conversation with Kareem Rafai. He's up in Michigan right now, but he's talking about dissent, talking about authoritarianism, talking about protesting them and the very real cost that protest can have. Um, on that vein, we've got it right in the news right now as we're speaking, really, in Iran. We have massive protests, the death of a woman at the hands of the morality police, they call it. She died in custody, and especially the women and others are protesting back. They're getting killed in the streets for it. We've seen this before in 2019. We've seen it before other times in Iran where they'll do this really brutal crackdown. When you're talking about dissent and how important it is and protesting, how's it hit when you see something like this? Because, you know, let's be honest here. Sometimes protesting gets a little performative and there's actually a protesting industry. But when you see this kind of bravery, women ripping off their hijabs and cutting their hair in public and this sort of thing. Boy, that really hits home on how important this stuff is to me. How's it hit with you, though? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they are the peak of bravery. People standing up in regimes as repressive as Iran's and, you know, openly flouting, um, you know, the most repressive laws. It really is inspiring. And that's why I, in this article, I talked to Drew specifically about Iran and the silencing of a set of dissent in Iran and abroad. 
Um, and the case of Masih Alinejad, who is a Iranian women's rights activist here in the US, who faced not even her first assassination attempt um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, I mean, it really has come full circle that, you know, just a couple of weeks after the the assassination attempt of um, Masih Alinejad and also Salman Rushdie, that we have these mass protests in, um, in Tehran. Compare and contrast those two because hers you heard almost nothing about. And I watch a lot of news and I heard nothing about it. Rusty obviously got international headlines. Of course, he's been under a fatah for what, 40 years now. So that one got a lot of headlines. Why do you think certain ones of those hit the headlines and certain one of them don't? Now, also, Rusty's was on video, so that's part of it, to be fair. And he's a much higher profile. But the core problem, what the Iranian regime was trying to do there, it's the same thing, isn't it? Exactly. So it doesn't matter how high of a profile the person is. We need to be paying attention to every act of Iranian-sponsored terror on our soil, whether it be a famous author like Rishti or a prominent activist like Masih Alinejad. We need to be paying attention to Iran's actions on our own soil. It's a violation of our sovereignty. It's a violation of our freedoms. Um, and it's it's honestly egregious that an Iranian-American activist, she, I believe, is an American citizen, is at threat of being gunned down in her own home in New York because she said something negative about a regime thousands of miles away. Now, to come back to China for a minute, we know Vladimir Putin has executed and tried to assassinate people through various poisonings and other matters. Uh, we know the Iranians have been doing it for decades. The Chinese are more subtle about this, but it's no less wicked and evil what they're trying to do with dissent. Their methods are different. Like, you know, Russia, Russia invaded Ukraine. China's trying to do this, you know, economically and influence wise. They don't really want a shooting war uh, they, they, because it's bad for business. But the spirit of authoritarianism, the same problem, the same human rights issues, it's all there. It's just wearing a different coat and using a different method, isn't it? Absolutely. You're right. It's a lot more covert on the end of China. Um, I think the bomb threat, um, the faux bomb threat in the case of Drew Pavlou is, you know, one of the more open flouting of their anti-democratic activities abroad. But um, like I talked to Drew, um, most of their action is covert. So they have, you know, people on college campuses reporting to them about um, Chinese students who are, you know, talking about Tiananmen Square or criticizing the CCP. They have professors we've seen in the past few years that are conducting uh, academic espionage. Uh, they're a lot more covert about it. They're not like Iran sending assassins to people's doors in New York City. Now, you also, we talked about talking to Drew about uh, his struggle. You also talked to a Chinese-Australian dissident, Vicky uh, I'll let you pronounce the name because I'll butcher it too, who's been the subject of Chinese state media smear campaign and serial harassment. I got to imagine, although the case is different and the methods are a little different, boy, it sure sounds like a lot of the same things because the way you harass and crush dissent is pretty universal, isn't it? Tell us about her story like you did with Drew. Put a human face on that one. I actually, I didn't speak with Vicky, but Drew is a close uh, friend of hers. She's a pretty prominent um, anti-CCP activist who has been relentlessly harassed by um, agents of the CCP, her personal text messages being 
publicized on Chinese social media, uh, you know, her personal devices being hacked, just systematic harassment. There's no other way to describe it. I can't even imagine being in the situation that she's been in. Um, but yeah, she, her story is just one of many that Drew shared with me of um, Chinese diaspora communities and Chinese dissidents being relentlessly targeted by the CCP apparatus abroad. Yeah, you also made a point to kind of draw these uh, desperate threads together. You know, the 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 uh, wannabe assassins of Rushdie and Alinajad, they're going to be brought to justice because they were caught. You know, they were literally caught in the act. But when it's the CCP calling in a bomb threat, when it's them crushing dissent, when it's them using things like diplomatic immunity to cover their uh, actions in foreign countries, we're not going to get a quick, clean justice in that way. So how do you fight back against it? Absolutely. And I, I draw this, you know, I draw attention to that in the piece because we need to start holding these regimes accountable for crimes they're committing essentially on our soil and against our own citizens. Um, it's not enough to just prosecute their agents. We also need to start holding the governments that are the ones funding and sending these people out to harass American and Western citizens. That needs to be something that we peg to our diplomacy. You know, how are we going to negotiate deals with someone like, you know, uh, Raisi in Iran when he's sending assassins to kill random American citizens? It's absurd. Yeah. And the reason we don't do that is because, you know, Iran is obviously a player in the Middle East trying to always keep that delicate balance going. We know the issues with them in Israel. We know the issues with them in the Saudis. It's a complicated thing. So that that balance buys them a lot of their human rights violations. China buys theirs economically. People are mm -hmm. afraid to upset. They want to do business with China. So they buy theirs economically. You just mentioned the president of Iran. We just had the incident in New York City. Christina Amanpour, the well-known reporter, refused to wear a headscarf to the interview, and he stormed off mad and refused to do it, basically, or his staff did. That doesn't sound like a big protest compared to the economic stuff and the human rights stuff and peace in the Middle East. But what you're saying, little things like that publicly to leaders that make them lose face, which is something they do care about, I think that does matter. How does it land with you, though? Absolutely. You know, I'm more enthusiastic than anyone to see the now mainstreamed upheaval against the Iranian government right now in the US. And I hope it lasts because we can't go weak. There's no more time for weakness. Too many people have died at the hands of the Iranian regime for us to take a step back and give them a boatload of concessions. So seeing this mainstreamed upheaval against not only Raisi, but you know the government of Iran over what's been going on in the past week, it's, it's really great to see. Um, Kareem Rafai joining us. Now, you've gotten to talk to dissidents like Drew. You've got a little bit of a network. You're from a diasporic community. Not everybody listening to that has those kind of connections. What can someone do to affect it just in their social media, in their conversations, in the discourse, in the way they talk about these things? Just kind of the average person who you know doesn't have political connections and maybe doesn't think they have a dog in the fight other than maybe they do care about freedom. Tell them a few things they can do that actually affect change here. Is it in the way they talk? Is it following and platforming and echoing the dissidents that do get their message out? 
give the normal folks a thing or two they can do like on their social media that would actually do some good here and not just yelling at the TV about how wrong it all is? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the number one thing that someone who is not intimately connected to these issues can do is to fight the apathy. And the way that you fight apathy is continuing to talk about the human rights abuses that are happening, continuing to platform dissidents and the people who actually are being intimately affected by these anti-democratic actors and fighting against the kind of everyday apathy of, well, that's thousands of miles away. It doesn't affect me because in reality, it does. Every time you go to the pump, and the price is above $4, you can point to, you know, the instability that's been caused by Russia. It's it's an everyday thing. It's for everyone. So you may think that you don't have a dog in the fight, but in the end, you do. You may not be as intimately connected as someone, you know, in Kiev or someone in Aleppo or someone in a diaspora community, but you are being affected by the actions of these regimes every single day. And you should be putting an effort to making sure other people know that too. Yeah, that's really well put, my friend, Kareem Rafai, joining us. Um, we're going to have you back because these issues are universal. They're not going away. They look like they're accelerating in a lot of ways. But I also take some hope here because I think the reason some of this is accelerating is because I think some of these regimes are legitimately scared, especially Putin, especially the Iranian regime. Uh, China's not going anywhere, but they obviously have a long-term plan that they worry about it. So we have to have hope because if they're worried, that means that there's hope. Um until we get you back, though, let folks know where they can follow you. We're going to link to this piece. It's a great piece. There's a lot of links inside the piece. Make sure you read those as well. Read it for yourself. Share it with folks. Make up your own mind. We'll link to that in the show notes. Let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on until they see you the next time we get you on Hurtail. Um, I'm at Kareem Rafai on Twitter and Instagram. That's K-A-R-E-E-M, like the basketball player, R-I-F-A-I. Makes it nice and easy. Good reference point, my friend. Uh, he's also a Young Voices contributor, so you'll be seeing him on all those platforms. We'll link to his page as well. Great stuff. Um, best of luck up in Michigan. I guess if you got to go somewhere up there, that's not too bad of a spot. Uh, we kid, we kid. Uh, great information today. Important topic. Really enjoyed having you. We will have you back. Thank you so much for the time, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, sir. Joseph Palatano joining us. Let, let's talk about that bottom up real quick, though. Is there something to be said that the American psyche, and I'm just talking about generally here, whether it's politically, cultural, do we not have a handle on what our economy actually is right now? I just, I said it offhanded, but I want to dig into it because I feel like I just skipped by. You know, our Joe Biden does this every third time he talks about the economy. He's still, because he's an old school guy, he still talks about, we're going to get these manufacturing jobs back. And, no, you're not. And people, when they stop and think about it, understand, no, you're not, because it's very different because they still in their minds may think open heart steel furnaces with thousands of people and don't realize those are dozens of people running computers now. It's a whole different thing. We're not a manufacturing economy anymore. We're a service based economy. Economically, if you did that as a research paper, that's a vast difference. But psyche wise, I don't think Americans have changed their mindset to understand that. I think that might be part of the problem with how we discuss these things and our expectations and how we think of this is like 
maybe we just don't really understand what our economy really is right now. Is that a fair way to look at it? Uh, I, I think so. I do think people, you know, if you, if you look at it right now, so manufacturing share of employment, it's like 8%, you know, so you're saying less than one in 10 workers, which means functionally like one in 20 people, because uh, about half of people either too young, too old, or, other, you know, parents that are otherwise out of the workforce, you know, one in 20 people work in manufacturing in the U.S., and that number has been trending downwards as a share for for decades because of exactly what we said it's been trending downwards globally uh in the same for some of the same reasons that like in the 1900s the share of people who were working on farms was trending down globally um i do think there's like a rhetorical ideation for it because it's very it's very concrete very impressive. Uh, I, I like to think of it as like, it's very physical deliverable here. If you're saying I've built a factory or we've opened this new, you know, plant, it's it's a lot easier to point to than it is to say, hey, you know, this new office building came in or this new tech startup happened. And the tech startup or the office building might be a bigger deal for, you know, the actual rural economy. Uh, it's just a little less glamorous. I... Uh, Maybe I'm not as pessimistic as you are here. You know, I think that there genuinely has been, um, maybe starting in 2001, like the 2001, 2008 recessions, uh, especially were horrible for US manufacturing. Um, in a world in which those were avoided, which like, yeah, uh, if we could avoid every recession, that'd be great. But those ones were especially bad for, for manufacturing. Um, in a world where there's a, those are avoided, maybe you know we're talking um, a similar share of employment, or maybe even a lower share of employment, but that like output is better. That like the U.S. maybe didn't lose the uh, semiconductor race to Taiwan. That maybe you know a lot of these uh, high tech manufacturing processes occur domestically, and that's a big value add. But yeah, I do think I think people sometimes have this like uh, misunderstanding. Like this is uh, the joke I always make is like check the summary statistics. By which I mean like yeah, if you're looking at saying oh this is going to be this is a big deal, um, manufacturing is coming back in the U.S. You know, lots of uh, manufacturers are hiring hiring nowadays, or like their their demand for workers is really high that's like an important story, but like put in perspective, the amount of jobs that restaurants have lost over the last few years, much higher than the amount of jobs that um, uh, manufacturing has gained. And now some of those restaurant jobs are, I would actually say most or all of that is people who used to work at restaurants now working in offices or in warehouses, you know, doing higher paying, more productive work. Um, but that doesn't get the same rhetorical treatment as like if people were going into manufacturing jobs. So yeah, I think there's a long way of saying, I think people are maybe a little psychologically biased there uh, because of how easy it is, how deliverable. Um, you know, I think that uh, I was doing this big piece on inflation expectations. Um, and one of the things you consistently found was like the most concrete 
present things always have the most, uh, always have the biggest impact. And it's like, well, yeah, duh. Uh, but I think that carries over to a lot of other areas of economics as well. It's like, okay, people base their inflation expectations on what their grocery bill is, even though groceries are like 10% of, of uh, <laughs> their total spending. People base their expectations of how the economy is doing based on you know, how they perceive manufacturing to be doing, even though manufacturing is not a big share of employment. That'll do it for her to tell. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We've done whole segments and entire programs. We've even done a couple of our deep dive podcasts based on things you gave us in feedback, things you wanted covered, things you didn't think get addressed properly, things you didn't think were getting addressed at all, or you just wanted to clarify. Uh, also, we bring people on all the time who disagree with me because if they think I'm wrong, we'll bring them on, give them some run, be, be nice, keep your bearing. But if you want to do that yourself, we'd love to hear from you. Hurtellshow at gmail.com, hurtellshow at the Twitter. I'd love to get a hold of us either one of those ways. Also, YouTube and any of the podcasting platforms, they have an option to leave a comment. You can do that. We'll try to get back to you that way. And of course, as always, if you do us a solid, make sure you leave a rating and a review and share us on your own social media. We don't advertise outside of our own social media platforms. This has all been word of mouth. And last week was the biggest week for this show we've ever had in both downloads and in views. And it's all because of you. Thank you so very, very much for your continued support. As long as you keep listening and watching, we're going to keep doing it. Turning down the noise of the news cycle so that we can get to the information we need and discern the times we live in. So until then, wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Talk to you again real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.